Hi, I'm Brews News Editor Matt Kirkegaard, and thanks to your malt mates at Cry Malt, this is Beer is a Conversation. Beer is a Conversation is our weekly sit-down with some of the people who make the beer industry the interesting and dynamic thing that it is. And through these conversations, we dig a little deeper into the stories behind the business of beer and brewing. And this week is another chat, and our last one from Brow Bevial, where I learn a lot about history and brewing traditions, and a little bit about malt, with Dr. Axel Gerler from German Malts to Best Malts. So much has happened in the craft brewing industry in a short time in Australia with new breweries, beer styles and business models that sometimes it can be easy to forget that these things have come and gone before, especially in a country with such strong brewing traditions as Germany. Dr. Gerler talks about his family's seven-generation history in the brewing industry, firstly in brewing itself in Berlin and then for the last three in Malton. He also talks about his PhD research into German family brewers, where he discovered that their move towards premiumization protected their businesses when the other corporate breweries struggled in a commodity market. We also hear of the development of best malts from a period post-World War II when roasted barley was used to make ersatz coffee, but that the German commitment to beer culture saw malting recover and the recent growth of craft beer worldwide has seen it flourish. It's a fun chat from the noisy floor of Brow, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Dr. Axel Gerler, welcome to Beer is a Conversation. Hi, glad to be here. Now, I'm very honoured to be here at, at, at Brow and getting to, to talk to you about best malts. Yes, welcome, great that you're here. Now, one of the things, uh, when I was reading your uh, biography, I was very surprised that you're in a 100-year-plus-old business. It's a family-owned business, but then you spent a lot of your time studying and then working outside of the business. Maybe you can tell me a little bit about your career before you entered the family business. Yeah. So my my grandfather started uh, the company, uh, or more precisely, he bought a company that was already existing. So that was a small malt house uh, in a small valley, which uh, was starting to become developed in the beginning of the 19th century, because they built a train. It was a remote little valley, which was not really uh, very populated. And um, due to this train development, which was done by one of the leaders at that time, political leaders at that time, this valley became more accessible. And this is why this a uh, little malt house uh, was interesting and grew uh, from that time on onwards. And so as a, as a child, uh, obviously we played in the malt house or we spent our, got some extra money for the, for the holidays, you know, when, when we, had, we were on school break. Um, and uh, so this, this was the connection from the early days. Um, and then uh, since we are a small group of family owners, uh, we were always, you know, discussing uh, the future and the strategy of the company uh, when I when I was a little more, little older, and so one of the reasons why I started studying uh, the, the the family business um, as as a, as a construction with all its possibilities, but also with its constraints, um, it was pretty natural that I took the brewing industry uh, as a subject. Uh, because this is where we had access with our family network for many generations. So my, I think we've been in the in the brewing industry for seven generations. 
So my great-grandfather, he was in Berlin in a fairly large brewery at that time, 300,000 hectoliters, and he was the technical director there. And actually at that time, he was paid per hectoliter. So every hectoliter that was sold, he got a commission. That was the deal. And uh, since it was started when it was fairly small, and it grew up to 300,000 hectoliters, he became fairly wealthy. So my, my, grand, my grandfather, he wanted to do something else. At the same time, you know, the war started, or not started, but uh, it was, my, my grandfather was concerned that the war could start. The political situation uh, worsened in Germany. And so they were concerned to leave Berlin because all the family is coming from Berlin. So we are Prussian by origin. Yeah. And um, that was the reason why he left. He, wanted, he was looking for an opportunity to leave Berlin because they were concerned that it's going to be destroyed if the Nazis should ever have started this crazy war, which they did. And that was the reason why we moved to Heidelberg, because that was much more remote, old university place, very beautiful, um, gorgeous environment, you know, very, very nice, beautiful nature. And, and that was when they bought the small maltings that had just exactly. been made exactly. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So he got some, he inherited some money from his father. And that was when he decided to move away from Berlin, stay in the industry, but do something different. And that was how our tradition with the malting started. And then he bought a couple of uh, malt houses. Uh, we lost, unfortunately, due to the war, we lost uh, quite a few of them. Uh, but this one malt house, uh, which is now our, still our core production, uh, we still we, st we had at that time. We got back after the war. Uh, in the beginning, the very first product that was bagged uh, in a rather simple bagging line at that time was coffee. Because after the war, you know, there was no, no coffee, no real coffee. So they made coffee from malt, uh, which was not as tasty as the real coffee from coffee beans. But it was, it was something you could start after the war when times were really rough. And then after the war, it developed uh, pretty fast, pretty fast. But one important thing is, which we, 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 take, we tend to take for granted today, that after the war, you know, a lot of destruction, a lot of concern to, to feed the population, uh, a lot of scarcity everywhere. But the industry, which is the brewers and the maltsters uh, and the farmers for that matter, they said, if we want to have the, we want to keep the tradition with the beer making in Germany, we need good barley. We do need good barley. So even though beer may be a luxury item if you don't have anything to eat, very early on after the war they said, we need to protect our industry, we need to grow the best barley in the world. And, and this was a very wise decision. There were many lobbies that still exist uh, that, that were, you know, that the target, the objective was to protect uh, the barley, the, brew, the brewing barley in Germany and make sure that it's profitable for the farmers. Um, and there are many, many things today in Germany still, uh, like the Berliner program. I don't know whether you're, you're aware of this. This is, a, this is an agreement between the maltsters, the brewers and the farmers each year they sit together and they think what are the best uh, varieties for barley to grow for the next year. And this is what we call the Berliner program. And these are supposedly the best seeds, the best uh, varieties to, to have brewing barley at that time. And this, this comes 
dates back to that time, uh, right after the war, and it still exists today. It's still very important. So we only, as best malls, we only buy, we only use barley, German barley, from the Berliner program. No other varieties, because we believe this is the result of a very, very intense selection process, and the result is convincing, and, and this is one of the reasons why the German brewers um, have the benefit to be certain that the barley that they use, as long as it's from the Berliner program, first of all, the farmers like it, they, they, they know how to grow it, they can work with it, they are happy with the results and with the profitability of it, and the maltsters can use it for a to make malt, and the brewers also use it in their brewing uh, process. So you grew up uh, doing odd jobs in, in, in the family business, but you went off and you did your PhD in the, the German family breweries. Talk to me about uh, your, your research. Yes, the question was, in the 70s and 80s in Germany, we had a very interesting phenomenon that large uh, conglomerate breweries were going out of business. In the Frankfurt area and in the Dortmund area, we had very large old established breweries, many thousands of employees going out of business. At the same time, we had brewers like uh, König, uh, Warsteiner, Kramer, the Kramer family, the Warsteiner, uh, Krombacher, Feltins, um, Bitburger, traditional family-owned businesses, um, still they are, extremely successful. And the question was, how can it be that there's an industry that is going through difficult times? Why is it that family businesses are successful and non-family stock stock owned companies not successful and that was the question i was trying to answer so i looked at 120 breweries 60 from category one 60 from category two try to compare the result i talked to many of them the owners so i tried to find out why do they think that they're successful what is their perception about success uh, and then i tried to come to a solution why is one side successful and the other one not? And what solution did you come to? <laughs> um, uh, various reasons, but the major reason I think is that the family-owned businesses make decisions for the long term, which is obvious. Yeah, it's we don't think in four years uh, board membership uh, uh, times. So we think about generations. So. When the industry became tough uh, and uh, the demand was going down, the large conglomerate breweries would reduce their prices instantly in order to increase sales. And they did this not in their core region because they said, we don't want to lose our core region around our production. We do this in areas which is 100, 100 120, uh, 120 kilometers away out of the core region because they thought if we sell our excess production outside the core region it will not backfire it will not destroy our high high margin business in the core region the family owners they were much more concerned about this they said no this is my product i need this quality this is our family honor to have the best beer in our region we cannot afford to buy cheap malt we cannot afford to use less water we cannot afford to speed up the process we have to stick to our rules and this has a cost and also we don't have the money to uh, 
you know, make losses. We cannot afford that. So they were sticking to their strategy. And not only this, they said, let's find a way to increase the perceived value of our beer. Because beer, at that time, export, export beer, we called it export, not because it was for export, but it's, it was called export beer. It's a, it's a pale ale, it's a good beer, but it was, it was perceived as a simple commodity beer. Very little differentiation um, and very little, you know, if you go to your local pub, you just have uh, export beer. And it was not a very expensive. So Koenig from the Koenig Brewery was actually the first who said, listen, I make this a premium article. I want a brand. And König is in German means king, so it's, you know, it's a king. Um, and he said, I want a premium beer. And this is how the premium beer in Germany was invented in the 70s and 80s. And the price was considerably higher. So he said, not only will I not reduce my prices in order to increase sales, I will, I will increase my price. I will not lower my price. I will increase my price and tell the customers, this is a premium beer. And you, like, you drink this not every day necessarily, but you drink this at special occasions. And this worked. And this was the invention of the premium beer, which we still have today. And Warsteiner, you may know, Warsteiner very much continued this. And Koenig was sold 10 years later, 20 years later, and then Warsteiner used the same strategy. So when you went, when I visited Warsteiner for an interview for my research, inside the building you would only find golden uh, door uh, how do you say door door handles golden door handles if you look at their brand it was all golden uh, so they really lift this this image of being premium 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 and something similar is happening happening i think in the craft business today i, I was going to ask you whether this was something that craft brewers can take their cues from yeah exactly because more differentiation, um, more ideas, more creativity, and more identity to the customer. You know, the, the customer, uh, the, the, the beer drinker of the premium beer, they wanted to have something special. They said, I, don't, I, I, have, a, it's, I have a good meal, I have a good company with friends. Now, I enjoy a good beer. And, and this is a little bit the same, I think, with hap which happens in the craft industry. And of course, the consumer then, is willing to pay more money for it because it's a special occasion and, and this is uh, what we see in the craft industry too. How was your research, uh, your, your PhD uh, work received by the local brewing industry? Was that something that they learned from and applied? Yes, I think uh, I talked to most of them, I gave them a feedback, uh, it was published so there was a, it was a book available and uh, uh, I, think, um, I think they liked it. Um, uh, whether they changed their strategies or not, I don't. I don't know. I don't think they did, but at least they read it. Now, after after that, you spent some time with the Boston Consulting Group, and that was working in the United States, I believe. Yes, yes. Uh, well, I lived in the U.S. for five years, and part of that time I studied, and then I came back to Germany, and then I worked for BCG for ten years, and uh, this work was also for some large family businesses. Um, like Atka Group, uh, you know, which is still family-owned, um, and of course, this work was not. It was very different, you know. That, that was about IPOs, uh, you know, about um, new strategy. We worked for Coke, 
uh, turn around the Coke business, which went down downwards in some part of Germany. Um, so there were many customers, and it was very exciting. Uh, had very little to do with the family business at that time, uh, but I would still attend our meetings, annual meetings. But my older brother, uh, he was, he decided to go into the company. So my father, when, when my grandfather retired, my father took over and then my older brother came in and he uh, did, the, did the business for 20 years. And then often one of the, one of the findings from family businesses, uh, it's very often it's not good if there are too many cooks uh, in the business. So it's better if, uh, uh, if the family, uh, you know, they, they spend the weekends in the family home together, but the work should be uh, precisely split. So I didn't interfere at that time. So what brought you back into the, to the family business? We had 2007, 2008, uh, we invested quite a bit in uh, bagging, in a new bagging line, in our first real bagging line, uh, which was very different from the coffee uh, bagging line in the, in the 50s. Um, so this was a fully automated bagging line and um, obviously there was a lot of investments and um, so for some time our sales were okay but the profitability was going down and um, the feeling was that we need to find we need to push exports very much in order to take advantage of the craft industry growing globally uh, and um, so this was the time when we needed more expertise in international business. Now, having studied in the U.S., uh, I, ha I, ra I ran the U.S., not the U.S., the Jordanian uh, consulate in Hamburg for 10 years. So I was honorary consul in, in Jordan, for, off Jordan in Hamburg, believe it or not, and traveling a lot abroad at that time. I was extremely involved, so we were giving out visas, travel visas, uh, for people who were living in the Hamburg area, they wanted to travel to uh, Jordan, they would come to us. But more importantly, we would support the local industry. If they needed some certifications from German authorities, we would help them. And this speed up the process a lot for them. You know, they, if they were having some documents, they needed a certification, we could, we could really speed up the process there. And so I was quite experienced in the in the international trade side um, and so we felt that it's a good time to use this uh, knowledge and expertise and this is the reason why I came in 2014 and uh, since then the situation has changed quite a bit. What did you learn spending time outside of the family business in, in, in all of your consulting and all of your international business experience that has been relevant to the, the family business that you're now back in. Yeah, I think the most important learning is that um, business is a personal thing. You know, it's uh, you can. Uh, we are a small company. Uh, you know, we have around 90 people working, uh, but uh, our business is a very relationship-driven thing. So, with our partners, global partners, and we we saw many of them in the past past two days here at the brow, um, it's, it's very important to have personal relationships. You know, in Chile at the moment, they are facing extreme problems with the political situation. I heard that, you know, the 
um, the stores are being robbed, uh, people are being killed on the streets, university is being destroyed. And so obviously our partner who is selling in Chile has a difficult time. So we need to understand that and we need to talk to him and we need to find ways to solve and help as much as we can. We had the same in Russia when the oil price in Russia a few years ago was down. The purchasing power of Russia and the people in Russia was not very good. So we needed to find ways to make an offer to the market which is reasonable. You know, not only think about our profitability and our own sales, but support the partners. And this works better if you have a personal relationship. So that means I go to visit them, we spend weekends, um, and we try to, you know, really get to know each other. And this, sta this stabilizes the business a lot. Um, and I think, you know, many, many larger companies, they forget, they look at numbers and internet and emails and stuff. But still, I think taking the time to visit people, spend a weekend, very inefficient, just sit around, have a beer, talk to each other is extremely important. Especially when things are not going so well. Tell us a little bit about malt. Um, craft beer, which you alluded to earlier, has been very much driven by the, the, the trends in the hop market. We're starting to see a little bit of a focus on malt, which is the, the backbone of, of beers. Tell us a little bit about what makes, uh, what, what makes best malt different from any of the other malts. Yes. I mean, we have a saying in our, uh, in our industry that we say the hops is the soul of the beer, but the malt is the body. Uh, the malt gives the body and so what we see in many craft markets we saw it in the US but also we see it in less developed markets uh, that in the beginning they get all crazy about hops which is fine you know that they, they have very hoppy beers uh, uh, crazy combinations triple IPAs uh, just wonderful things which is perfectly alright but then um, when when the mainstream or the, the, the mainstream consumers when the freaks uh, retire and the, and the average consumer comes in uh, they want not only that they want also a, a good solid beer you know nice multi body that they can drink not one glass but three or four glasses uh, some light beers uh, if you have a nice summer evening you know you don't want to get drunk you just want to have a couple of beers and still feel good and this is I think when the malt becomes more important and then they start to develop they start to uh, find out about the enormous variety that we have in our toolbox of different malts. So we have so many different malts, you know, one is a little more chocolate tasty, the other one is a little more bitter, the, the third one is giving it a little taste of uh, hazelnuts or whatever. So you have a whole toolbox of, of malt varieties that you can use. And this is when it becomes interesting uh, for us uh, that we, we assist. So of course, we consult with the breweries. We go to the breweries. Uh, there are regional differences in the taste, which we try to understand. And then our malt, malt masters go to the breweries and together with our distributors and help. Does barley have a terroir? The wine industry talks about the flavor of the, of the soil. And you know, barley can be grown just about anywhere. But does a German barley that you make uh, best malts from taste different from an English barley or an Australian barley and is, is that appreciable in the beer? Uh, yes of course 
uh, only use German Bali. Very easy. No, what is, what is important that even in the EU, European Union, we have a wide variety of regulations. So if you buy a Bali from Belgium or from the UK or from Germany, you are, the, the farmer is restricted by local legislation, what he can use and what he cannot use. Now I'm not saying that in France they are not as much concerned about their barley growing as we are in Germany, but we understand better what you can or cannot do in Germany. So we are very comfortable with uh, the very strict controls of farmers in Germany. Uh, we know most of the farmers who we work with, uh, we buy from farmers and from cooperatives, traders, but also these are a handful of partners uh, that we, we have long, sometimes relationships over many generations, of three generations. So this is why we use German barley. Uh, whether it's better or worse, I don't know. I think, you know, if you want to have a good Belgian beer, Belgian style beer, most brewers want to use a Belgian malt, which is perfectly fine. If you want to have a Kölsch or Alt or Pilsen beer, you may want to consider German beer. For us, it's, it's really a question of knowing precisely what we have to expect. So certain um, chemicals are not allowed in Germany. They are allowed in other countries. Uh, and this is very, very important because we know also on the other side, when we export to the US, Australia, New Zealand, uh, we understand or we try to understand what are the, the requirements from the local authorities in these countries. And we need to match the two. And it's easier when we work from a, with a raw material where we are 100% confident what is in it and what cannot be in it. And our whole analytics uh, are fine-tuned in that direction. So that's a, the major reason why we use Brewing Valley. Of course, you know, also the, the, the taste, the color, the size of the kernels um, is, is important. We think in Germany it's very, very good. Um, France obviously has a lot of barley, brewing barley, which uh, probably is also very good. But also our customers, some of them say we only want German barley. The German breweries have a list, most of them have a list in their specs, a list of countries that they accept. And uh, all of them accept Germany. And this is one of the reasons why we do that. So if, if barley is fairly unique, apart from those qualitative uh, things you were talking about, I, I believe that there are some differences in the way that you actually malt the barley and particularly roast some of, some of your malts. Yes. Um, I mean, slow malting sometimes applies to uh, the way we do certain things, which I don't like. I think sometimes we should do things a little faster. So whenever something doesn't work as fast as I think it should work, I would say this is slow malting. But for the most part in the production, uh, slow means six germination days, uh, enough time in the kiln to have a nature-like process. Some of our competitors, also in Australia, uh, they use four germination days only. Uh, which of course brings down your costs, it's more efficient, it's faster, you can maybe use chemicals in order to speed up catalyzers. Uh, we don't do that. So this is one of the differences in the for all of the German maltsters. We have to comply with the German Reinheitsgebot. 
which is a set of rules uh, that you have to apply when you malt and when you brew in Germany. And this, I think, is a very, very, very good guarantee uh, for all of the global customers that you have to do this. Um, so this is, in our, in our process, uh, we not only stick to the rules of the German Reinheitsgebot, but we also take the time to have a nature-like process. Don't push it, because pushing it will always lead to mistakes. So what do you mean push it? Are, are, are there ways that you can expedite or speed up the germination process to facilitate that breaking down of the starches? Very easy. Uh, you increase the temperature during the germination, you increase the moisture during germination to a point where it speeds up the process so you don't need the six days but you can do it in four days and many many people do it in four days. We don't we don't believe in this. We, we always use six days in the germination. In the kiln um, you can speed up by more heat, more ventilation. Uh, there are many possibilities how you can speed up the process. Uh, for instance, in the steeping, uh, we use always dual steeping. So we, we apply different types of water twice to each kernel. Why? Because we believe it's important to clean the barley that is coming from the field. Also, the oxygen comes to the kernel in a more homogeneous way. If in the first steeping phase, the kernel is in the bottom, it will be in the top in the next steeping phase. Oxygen comes from the top, so then we get a more homogeneous product. And there are hundreds of different ways how we can, how we can optimize the production of the, uh, the malt and then get better results. Um, since you mentioned the roasting, again, uh, you can put the malt in a roasting drum, you keep it there for 3-4 hours, you get a nice roasted malt. Problem is, since you have a drum, steel drum, you always have kernels touching the steel and this results in a burnt surface. This burnt surface again results or you will taste as a bitter taste. So the astringent bitterness that you will see in some of the roasted malts comes from exactly that. So we were thinking when we started our roasting, how can we avoid this? And we came across a technology which is called fluid bed roasting, which is a technology where we have the kernels and they are blown up in the air like popcorn. And do, when they are blown up, there's a heated device in the middle and the kernels are dancing around uh, this heated device. So we have fairly little exposure of the kernels directly to the, heat, the heating device and that results in uh, 40 to 50% less pyrosins. Pyrosins is the stuff that you get when you have burnt kernels. So, and this is, this is uh, uh, results in a very soft, smooth tasting malt uh, so when you try our chocolate malt against some of the competing malts, uh, many customers say this is just very smooth, very, very, very good taste. When you say you found that technology, how long have you been doing it that way? Uh, from the very beginning, 10 years, 10 years now. As far as I know, we're worldwide the only maltster using this technology, which has some challenges. Every cycle, every batch, only 100 kilos. So we have customers in Africa, for instance, where we sell five to 600 tons of roasted malt. So it takes many 
many, many, many cycles. Each cycle is 8 to 12 minutes. So the malt stays for 8 to 12 minutes in the roasting device, in the roaster, and of course many batches. But that allows us to fine tune. So what the customer wants, if the customer has a special request, especially in the baking industry, we also do roasted malts for the baking industry, we can pretty much get exactly what he wants. Because if we have 300 or 200 tons, small batches, we can just see how each malt is roasted and then and then we can fine-tune. Where do you see the, the, the malt industry going? Are, are we looking at new barley breeds? Are we looking at new techniques? What's the innovation path for, for barley at the moment and malt? Yes. Uh, basically, we have three things, I think. First one is the industry structure. The industry structure, as we know from other people at this trade show, uh, some other companies, uh, there's a lot of consolidation in this industry. Um, so if you have global customers like ABI, obviously they want global partners who are able to supply them in every part of the world with reasonably priced malt. This is one thing that is a challenge because it drives down the price for malt all over the world. Um, not only ABI, get supplied by these guys but also other uh, breweries get supplied by these guys so when we have a medium-sized brewery in Germany they will also get an, a quote from some of these large groups whether it's souffle or board malt whatever so I'll, I'll just jump in this sounds like we're coming back in a lot of ways to your PhD research about the German family brewers where you've got the publicly listed breweries that think very short term and the family-owned breweries that think a little bit longer term and locking value into their product? Yes, yes and no, because I think it's strategically it's a very smart decision if you are a large, very large global malt company. Uh, I think it's, it's, it, it makes sense that if we have large, very, very large brewing groups uh, requiring global coverage, I think it's a very good decision. I don't think it's a mistake like some of the breweries in Germany in the 70s and 80s. I think this was a clear mistake and they were driven out of business. They, they had to close down. So I don't think this is, this is the analogy to, to my work. But one analogy clearly is that one of the problems of family business is restricted access to capital. There's the family, there's banks, uh, obviously, this can bring you to a certain level, but um, there is a restriction on the capital side. If you want to be premium craft malt, you have to invest. You have to invest in magnets to detect metal, metal particles. You have to invest in cleaning devices. You have to de-stone. You have to de-dust. If you don't do that, the customer in Australia will see, you open the bag, and he will have three hands full of dust. And he doesn't like that because he says, I'm paying a lot for best malts. I want the best malt in the world. And dust is nothing I can use for my brewing. So we have to make sure this doesn't happen. But this is costly. And many of the family businesses today, the malts, malt companies, it's tough for them to, uh, to pay, to invest. You know, our investment for this new... Um, for this new warehouse, including a new bagging line, uh, is uh, almost six million, six million euros uh, that we have invested. 
So for a, for a small company, we have three family owners. I'm the, I'm the majority owner, but six million is not pocket money. Uh, so, um, so this is a challenge for some of the family businesses. So if you're asking about the future of the family, either the family maltsters in Germany, either they find a way to upgrade their product like we did and we still do, or I think they will be facing the competition from the large groups, which is very tough to uh, sustain. Because uh, clearly if you do batches of 1,000, 2,000 tons, uh, there is uh, a, a lot of scale economies. I mean, you need you need energy, you need water, and both energy and water give a lot of scale economies uh, if you if you move into larger production batches. So for us, we do 30 tons per batch, uh, up to 60, 90 tons per batch. So we're talking about totally different business. We personally, we believe, or I personally believe, that it shows very much in the quality. We get the feedback from many, many brewers all around the world that there's no comparing of a, uh, you know, a hand-made malt, uh, whether it's in the roasting, 100 kilos per batch, or in the germination with 30 to 90 tons per batch. Uh, we're comparing it with other monsters of thousands or even more uh, there's no comparing it's a different we can do different things um, so that's the way that's what we try to do our strategy is to upgrade deliver superior service good products good packaging um, delivered by partners who can deliver in a very fast way so we hope that David Cryer uh, or we know that David Cryer in New Zealand and in Australia will be able to deliver any product within 48 hours to the customer. And this is what the customers want. We've seen hop varieties developed that have really interesting explosive flavors. Will we see malt focusing on some of the interesting flavors that malt can have through the, through the barley growing process? Will we see new breeds of barley or new ways of malting? Yes, we have... Um, when, we, when I look at our innovations that we had for the last, last 10 years, for instance, we, we had one product which we call Red X, and we found out that uh, some brewers have an interest to make a red beer. Now, getting to a nice red color in your beer used to be rather difficult. You need to, have, uh, you need to know what you're doing, you need to have the right mix of malts in order to get to the red color. Also. It depends a lot on the pH value of your water. It depends a lot on other things in your brewing process. So it's not plug and play. So we thought, okay, how can we make it easier for a brewer to develop a nice red beer, regardless whether he has water quality A, quality B, quality C. So we came up with Red X, which you can use up to 100% in your grain bill. Uh, Mitch Steele from Stone used it with a lot of hops and he made a beer, what they called the Stone Pataskala Red X IPA, which is a perfect application of what we wanted to do because not necessarily you would make a red beer, a uh, heavy red beer with a lot of hops, but he said, I want to make it hoppy. So this is one of our innovations. We thought this is a problem that brewers have and we wanted to find a solution. And it's now one of our best sellers in US, China, uh, because it's a real differentiating product. 
Um, so this is this is an innovation that we were looking for and searching for, and we found a product and people like it. Um, we also have innovations coming from Bali. Uh, there are some old strains, some old Bali types in Germany uh, that we are now developing into malts. Uh, and this, some established German breweries, they like these old strains to make something special. Um, and so the taste, yes, can be different. We have a lot of innovation right now in the Bali uh, when we talk about summer, spring barley and winter barley. Because of the climate change, uh, the farmers are looking for highly productive seeds um, that can be grown in a time when we have lots of water. So, winter barley is becoming more interesting for even large, very large industrial breweries in Germany are now willing to accept 20, 30, 50% winter barley, which is lower in price and e increasingly better uh, in uh, quality, especially when we talk about two-row barley, not so much six-row barley. So we use that and it's a huge area for potential innovation um, in the barley and in the malt also. Dr. Axel Guller, I know Brow is a big uh, time of year for you and I've kept you for uh, a very long time out of, out of the last uh, Brow. So thank you very much for, for this conversation about beer and telling us a little bit about your family company, Best Malts. I'm, I'm always glad to uh, talk to friends uh, outside of Germany, which uh, is important. We have an export ratio now of almost uh, 65%. And uh, especially Australia, I must say I haven't been to Australia personally, but I'm planning to do this next year. So we're looking forward to meet many of the brewers uh, in Australia and New Zealand, uh, together with our partner, Cryer. And, uh, yeah, thanks for interviewing me. Wonderful. Well, we look forward to seeing you in Australia. Will that be for next year for the uh, Institute of Brewing and Distilling? Uh, Brucon. Oh, Brucon. So I'll be Brucon, Brucon next year. Well, we look yeah. forward to seeing you down there. Thank you so much. And that was Best Maltz's Dr. Axel Gurler. Don't forget, if you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out in a number of ways. You can sponsor the show, either by a small monthly contribution or through a one-off donation. You can find details in the show notes. You can review our podcast on iTunes or your favourite podcasting service. Let us know what you think and help others discover the show. Finally, you can tell us directly what you think by sending an email to producer at brewsnews.com.au. All letters received will receive a Brews News bottle opener, and thanks to our good friends at Beer Cartel, the letter of the week will receive a mixed six-pack of Australian craft beer. When Brews News cast and crew are buying online, we buy at Beer Cartel. We love hearing your thoughts on the stories we cover because beer is a conversation. <laughs>